1: Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about sacrificial survival and sweltering summers. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Certain Emergency 122 and Billy Towers are voice talents Eric Peabody, Olivia Steele, Nick Goroff, and Creepy Face. Now get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale of the evening is written by Redditor CertainEmergency122 and is performed by Eric Peabody, Creepyface, Nick Goroff, and Olivia Steele. Three friends decide to summit Mount Everest. They spend the night at Camp 3, which punctuates the Lots of Face, and only one of them survives what happens next. And without further ado, I present to you if you ever hear screams on Mount Everest, it's already too late.
2: My best friend, Mike, was the one who invited me to join their triennial trip to Everest. I almost said no. For one, I didn't have $50,000 to blow on a guided expedition, climbing permit, and gear. For another, I'm not that kind of guy. Walking between my apartment and 7-Eleven was the extent of my physical activity last year. But Mike had offered to help cover my share of the trip. And then Derek had said, sneeringly, If you can even keep up, you do know it's every man for himself up there, right? That had sealed it. Guys like Derek have looked down on me my whole life. That's how I ended up here, in a hospital bed in Nepal. Out of the 37 climbers who made it to Camp 3, C3, and stayed the night, I'm the only one who survived. And that was due to sheer luck. Tashi and Sylvie left C3 two hours after arriving there because Sylvie had high-altitude pulmonary edema symptoms. When no one responded via radio the next day, Tashi alerted the rescue workers. They found me nearly 2,000 feet from where I had fallen. I had two cracked ribs, fractured pelvis, and a concussion. I barely pulled through. Everyone thinks that an avalanche swept the other climbers away. I'm here to tell you the truth about what happened on Everest. It's not the avalanches, crevices, or falling ice you need to fear. I slowly and carefully edged onto the first of the three ladders the Sherpas had set out over the crevice. This was our third rotation through the Kumbu Icefall. A river of ice strewn with towering ice seracs and deep crevices. If the weather permitted us, we'd spend tonight at C2, tomorrow night at C3, five hours overnight at C4, also known as South Coal, and then push for the summit. Mike was 20 feet ahead of me. Derek passed us 10 minutes ago, along with Jack and Sylvie, our head guide and junior grade. Jack insisted that we stay close together so that he could supervise us. I tried not to dwell on the fact that I was slowing our whole team down. Everyone besides me had high altitude experience, even if it was just summiting Kilimanjaro. A gust of wind sent the ladder swaying beneath me just then, and my right crampon nearly slipped Even though I was clipped to the safety rope, I pictured myself falling, my body repeatedly smashing against the icy walls of the crevice until I landed in a broken heap at the bottom. Go back to base camp, suggested a craven inner voice. Better yet, go back to Lukla airport and get the hell out of here. Unable to help myself, I darted a look downwards and caught a flash of movement. Something large and pale clung to the sheer, icy walls of the crevice right below our ladder. It rapidly scuttled out of sight as though it felt my eyes on it. What the actual fuck? It almost looked like, well, like a person.
0: You alright, Theo?
2: That was Tashi, one of the two climbing Sherpas on our team. I flinched and nearly fell, after all. Tashi hung back to track our progress and help us navigate the icefall. While the rest of us struggled to breathe, the Sherpas remained unaffected by the high altitude. They were the true heroes of Everest. The ones who navigated the safest and most direct routes, fixed the ropes, and more. Many of the Sherpas also had legends about Everest, which they called Chomolongma. They believed that the Buddhist goddess, Mielang Sangma, resided at its summit. A handful of Sherpas even claimed that hungry ghosts haunted the mountain. Ghosts that had never been human. Others mentioned the disappearances of climbers whose bodies had never been found. In fact, it had been difficult to find Sherpa guides for our expedition this month. Derek wasn't the type of guide who took no for an answer though. Not when he could throw a shit ton of money at the problem.
0: Theo, do you need to head back down?
2: I realized I'd frozen in place for the past few minutes. I'm fine. No way in hell was I going to back out over something I thought I saw, like Derek would ever let me live it down. I forced myself to relax my white-knuckled grip on the ropes and took a cautious step forward. Then another, and another. My heart still thundered wildly in my chest, but I knew I could make it to the summit. Probably. Maybe. One thing at a time, Theo. C2 was located at the foot of Lotse Face. Everest dominated the skyline, punching straight up through the air and crowding out her neighboring peaks. By the time we reached C2, I was more than ready to collapse. If my tent hadn't already been set up for me, I would have dropped to the ground and refused to move. I beelined towards it, passed the 80 or so other tents at sea too, crawled into my sleeping bag, and passed the fuck out. An odd rustling noise woke me up in the dead of night. At first, I assumed that I'd imagined it. The roar of the wind. So much like the roar of the surf provided a relaxing soundtrack, and I nearly fell back to sleep when the sound repeated itself. Louder this time. I fumbled for my headlamp. Multiple people stood outside my tent, pushing at it from all sides. I could see the shapes of their hands deforming the nylon fabric. Fear clawed up my throat and it took me a solid minute for me to realize that it had to be Derek fucking with me. Derek and his friends from the New Zealand team. Ever since the trip had started, he'd made one snide joke after another about my lack of high-altitude experience. Infuriated, I tried to surge to my feet forgetting that I was still partially zipped into my sleeping bag. Fuck. By the time I managed to leave my tent, everyone else had vanished. I glared out at the empty expanse of the snow and yelled, You guys are complete douchebags! As I turned around to go back inside, something struck me as strange about the ground beneath my tent. But I was too eager to get warm again to dwell on it. Not for the first time, I wondered why Mike even hung out with Derek. Mike was a quiet, thoughtful guy, embarrassed about his wealth. Derek was a trust fund dude bro who always had to one-up you. Let it go, I told myself. In three days, you'll be standing at the top of Everest. And I did manage to let it go. At least until I saw Derek sitting in our mess tent. Jack had woken us up before sunrise again, and thanks to Derek's juvenile prank, I'd gotten less than three hours of sleep. I marched over to his table. Why did you fuck with my tent last night? Derek raised his eyebrows. What are you talking about? Last night? You messed with my tent? Uh, no, I didn't. He leaned forward and gave me a sunny smile full of teeth. Maybe you should head back to base camp, get checked out by Angela. Angela was our base camp manager and doctor. Before we'd set out on our first rotation, she'd given us a long lecture about the warning signs of HAPE and HACE, and mentioned the possibility of experiencing high altitude psychosis. But I hadn't hallucinated what had happened last night. Anyway, I knew why Derek wasn't making the suggestion, and it wasn't out of concern for my well-being. He just didn't want me slowing them down. Forget it, I said through gritted teeth, leaving the tent. His laughter chased me out, and I nearly walked right into Sylvie. She deftly stopped around me at the last second. Sorry, I muttered, knowing that the tips of my ears were turning a bright red. Sylvie somehow looked even more beautiful up here than she had at base camp. I wasn't the only one who'd noticed her. Derek had spent the first two weeks of our trip bragging to her about summiting Cho Oyu and Denali, despite her obvious disinterest.
0: Jack says it's time for us to climb down to Lhotse,
2: she said, unperturbed, and gathered everyone else up. Jack began to review what to do if the valves on our oxygen canisters iced over or if our oxygen pipes were knocked loose. He'd already gone over the basics of using bottled oxygen at base camp, so I tuned him out in favor of staring up at the climb ahead of us. We'd purposefully avoided telling anyone else about our summit bid, so the cue to climb wasn't as bad as it could have been. The Lotse face was a wall of blue glacial ice that rose at pitches ranging from 40 to 50 degrees complete with occasional 80 degree bulges. After passing those, it was a simple steep climb to C3, which punctuated the face. I tried to find a rhythm between kicking my crampons into the hard ice and hauling myself up with the jumars, but I kept needing to stop and allow faster climbers to climb their carabiners to the rope ahead of me. Halfway through the climb, I finally realized what had been bothering me about last night. I hadn't seen any footprints outside my tent, none except for my own. Could Derek have been right? Had I just imagined the entire event, as I'd imagined seeing a man in the crevice? No, no way. But unease swept over me in a wave, and it didn't leave me even after I arrived. The view from C3 almost made the climb worth it. It allowed us to see the clouds rolling into the flat glacial valley we'd passed through yesterday and the plumes drifting from Everest's summit. Tashi and Dorje had painstakingly dug out small terraces for our tents to rest on. They'd chosen a spot high above the other team's tents, which meant that we'd get a head start on the climbing tomorrow. There weren't that many other teams here anyway only three, another American, the Canadian, and the New Zealand team. At 23,950 feet above sea level, the simplest actions, from tying on my crampons to picking up my water bottle, became immensely difficult, as though someone had tied heavy weights to my limbs. It took 10 minutes of breathing in the artificial air from my oxygen canister before my brain started working normally again. We each had six bottles of oxygen, three to climb up to the summit, and another three to get back down. Tomorrow night at the South Col would be the first time we were in the death zone. It was called that because, at that altitude, the human body could no longer acclimatize to the lack of oxygen. Our cells would begin to die from oxygen deprivation. As Mike and I went into the tent we'd be sharing from here on out, I debated whether or not to bring up what I'd seen last night. Would he tell me to head back down to base camp too? But before I could say anything, Mike broke the silence first.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now... which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Thanks for coming with me, man. It's good to have you.
2: Yeah, of course. Thanks for inviting me. I'm just... I'm sorry that you had to cover my share of the trip. I laughed awkwardly and looked down at my water bottle to cover up my discomfort. How did you get into mountain climbing anyway? I thought you hated heights. I vividly remember the time our families had gone to Disney World together. Mike and I had been ten years old and I'd convinced him to ride Space Mountain with me. As soon as the roller coaster moved forward, he started shrieking his head off. Mike grinned sheepishly, as though he remembered Space Mountain too. Yeah,
1: I do. But there's nothing else out there that beats climbing. When you're here, it's like the rest of the world falls away and all with you. Everything's simpler. Maybe scarier, but it's also more real. I've never felt like this anywhere else. I thought of
2: Jack saying that climbing a mountain revealed who you truly were. It grounds you down until you have no defenses left. I sort of knew what he meant. Life at base camp was simpler, climb, eat, sleep, rinse, and repeat. And I could easily see how the dangers here made a successful summit even sweeter. The question bursts out of me before I could stop in. Do you really think we'll make it all the way? I hadn't cared about summiting when we first arrived at base camp. I just hadn't wanted to embarrass myself. But now, the idea of turning back before reaching the top seemed insane. Yeah, Jack and the Sherpas will get us there. Mike fell asleep immediately, but I kept drifting off and startling back awake. I would think hours had passed, only to discover... It had been 10 minutes. Wearing the oxygen mask was like having plastic wrapped around my head. It was nearing 3am and I just closed my eyes again when I heard the sound of screams. Long pain filled screams. I shook Mike awake. Come on, we need to go. There's something wrong out there. What? What are you talking about? I don't know. I grabbed my headlamp and headed outside. It took me a minute to comprehend what I was looking at, blood everywhere, and the corpses of the other climbers. Most of them were barely recognizable, something had torn them apart like ragdolls and trampled all the tents below us. I ran towards a woman who'd collapsed a few feet away from us, one I recognized. She was on the New Zealand team, maybe we weren't too late, maybe we could bring her inside. and. Then I realized that she'd been ripped nearly in half. Her intestines spilled out in messy loops, and the ragged edges of her torn skin fluttered in the wind. We need to get Jack, Mike said, his face drawn and pallid. My eyes caught her outstretched arm. The fingers curled limply into her palm. With difficulty, I forced myself to look away. Yeah, but what about everyone else?
1: I don't see... Tashi and Sylvie's tent but Jack can radio base camp. He'll let them know what happened here. He was right. Tashi and Sylvie's tent had vanished.
2: I didn't want to think about what that meant. I followed Mike towards Jack and Dorje's tent, trying not to look around more than I had to. The nameless woman's corpse remained burned into my mind's eye like a hole charred into a piece of paper. Everyone here might be dead already except for us. The thought made the world waver around me, and I had to bite the inside of my cheek until I tasted blood. Dumb because the wound wouldn't heal at this altitude, but the pain helped steady me as Mike unzipped Jack's tent. I became aware of a loud slurping sound, as though someone was sucking up a milkshake through a straw. I tried to grab Mike's arm, but he'd moved out of reach. He shouted,
1: Jack! We need your help. We need your help!
2: He stopped speaking as the light of his headlamp revealed what was only a few feet away from us. The man I'd seen in the crevice the other day, the man I'd convinced myself I'd imagined, was crouched over something long and bloody. He wore faded tattered clothes and his skin was a bloodless white, pale as the snow on the ground. His head snapped up and I took an involuntary step backward because it wasn't a man. It couldn't be. Its eyes were two shiny silver quarters, its mouth a round disc of sharp inward pointing teeth. It lunged towards us, moving jerkily. Mike knocked me backward as we turned to run, but it was too late. It fell on him. He tried to get his arms up to protect his face and only partially succeeded. It snapped off the fingers on his right hand and blood sprayed out from the stumps and across the tent's ceiling. As it fastened its mouth over Mike's neck, he let loose a high, miserable scream. For fuck's sake, do something! My mind screamed at me. I dropped to all force to search through the jumble of objects in the tent. Mike's scream cut off right as I found the ice axe half buried under Jack's torn sleeping bag. It took me 30 seconds to get at tops, but when I turned around, Mike and the thing had vanished. A thick trail of blood led me to where the back of the tent had been ripped open. Mike! I ran outside, trying to look in every direction at once, but he was nowhere in sight. All I saw was Jack, what was left of him. His lower jaw was missing, and his half-severed tongue was nestled in the hollow of his throat, still connected by the barest thin scrap of muscle. I kept going, circling around our tents until I was at the front again. It had started snowing, making it even harder to look around. The area between my shoulder blades itched with the awareness that something lurked in the darkness. Something biding its time. Something brushed against my shoulder, I wheeled around and swung the axe, terror thrumming through my entire body, only to find Derek staring back at me, his eyes wide and frightened. He dodged at the last second so that I overbalanced and the point of the axe went wide.
1: What the fuck is wrong with you?
2: He shouted. I ignored this. Have you seen Mike anywhere?
1: No. No, I haven't seen anyone besides you, you fucking psycho. I just came outside
2: because I heard screams. He trailed off and pushed me up against the tent.
1: What happened here? Did you do this?
2: I opened my mouth to tell him that I hadn't done anything only for a terrible ringing shriek to render my explanation unnecessary. We looked up to see the thing from before clinging to the ice wall ten feet above us. It should have been impossible, the ice had no handholds or footholds, but it maintained its position without any apparent effort. Our gazes locked, and at that moment I had no doubt it was seeing me, really seeing me. Its silver eyes shone with sly cunning and it grinned at me, a horrible expression that changed its features into a twisted mockery of the human face. It darted its head forward like a striking snake, and I barely managed to stop it from biting a chunk of flesh out of my cheek, but it was too strong for me to hold back much longer. My fingers slid slowly inexorably off its face. It reared back for another strike, its lamprey mouth stretching impossibly wide, and I flinched away pointlessly. And before I could defend myself, its weight drove me into the ground and ripped the axe out of my hands. Abruptly, its face changed. The mouth rounded into a surprised O as the point of the axe came jutted out of its right eye through the back of its head. I squirmed out from underneath it. Derek stood over me, his mouth twisted into a grimace. It screeched again. A hundred nails scraping down a hundred chalkboards. And this time I knew somehow that it was communicating talking black tarry stuff poured out from its punctured eye and it writhed helplessly on its back like an overturned cockroach it then shivered all over and began to rot eyes sinking into the sockets skin loosening from the bones and shriveling and hair drifting away from a desiccated skull it didn't stop there either fingernails peeling away teeth falling out one after another and bones crackling and crumbling into dust, only for another gust of wind to scatter the entire pile of dusty bits and pieces of it across the snow. It all happened so quickly that it was gone by the time I got to my feet. What was that thing? asked Derek, shuddering. He no longer looked like the arrogant asshole who'd spent the entire trip antagonizing me. More like a little kid who just discovered that the monsters hiding in his closet were real. (sighs) No idea, but we need to get out of here. Now. I thought briefly of Mike, who might still be alive. Only I knew better. No one could have lost the amount of blood he had and still survived. At least not without receiving immediate medical attention. And do you want to know the worst thing about it?" My brain accepted the fact that he was dead, that i just lost my best friend of over seven years, and it went on, coldly calculating my odds of surviving long enough to get back down to base camp. A chorus of unholy screeches echoed through the night as if to emphasize my words. We exchanged a wordless look and ran for it. I sprinted past the nameless dead woman on my right. One of her eyelids had popped open while the other was still gummed shut. So she seemed to be giving us a cynical wink. You can run, but it won't help. If I'd thought that the climb was difficult before, it was nothing compared to when my life was on the line. My entire world narrowed down to kicking my crampons into the hard blue ice and clinging onto the face as the wind tried to pry me loose. I hadn't had time to clip myself into the fixed rope. If I fell, it wouldn't be a soft, gentle landing. I'd fall more than 5,000 feet. God only knew where I'd end up. Derek had outpaced me, but he started cursing under his breath. Rocks clattered down the slope. Go back up! He screamed. Go up! I glanced down, silver pinpricks of light glowed in the darkness, rapidly approaching us. There were more of those things, maybe six or eight, and they were all headed straight towards us. They easily scuttled over the steep icy bulges of the face, spreading out in line to prevent us from climbing past them. The only way for us to go was up, into the death zone. The slope angle above C3 was steep much steeper than I anticipated. Despite pushing myself to climb as quickly as I could, my calves trembled with fatigue. My breath kept coming short and my head ached. Derek was right on my heels, harshly gasping for air. The closer those things got to us, the more clearly we heard the strange guttural shrieks, screeches and hisses that compromised their language. They were only 10 feet behind us now. My stomach tightened with dread, And I waited for a claw-tipped hand to close around my ankle in an iron grip. Nothing happened. They should have caught up to us already. But they were pacing themselves. Falling back. Allowing us to continue climbing. Why? I found the answer in their grinning, bloodthirsty faces. Because there was no way out even if we climbed the six hours it took to reach the South Pole and managed to stay ahead of them the whole time, all the way up the summit. Then what? What would we do at the summit, with nowhere else to climb? What could we do? We can't keep climbing up! I shouted to Derek. I started scrambling sideways, away from the established route. Doing so meant risking falling into a crevice, but a swift death was better than being ripped apart from limb to limb. Additional shrieks rang through the night and I knew without looking that they'd course to follow us. The slope eventually leveled out and we stumbled over an ankle breaking mixture of snow, ice and rocks, Derek in the lead. Stinging sweat dripped into my eyes and the world turned blurry as my body struggled to cope with the lack of oxygen. I spotted an outcropping of large boulders ahead Maybe we could throw ourselves behind them. Maybe. Suddenly one of them scrambled forward on all fours to block our path. The other five surrounded us in a loose circle. From the back they looked like normal men and women. But the illusion fell away entirely once they faced you. They all had the same unnatural silver eyes and lamprey mouths. The same malicious expressions on their faces. I turned to Derek. He had a spare ice axe. I gestured towards it, but instead of giving one to me, he backed away and shook his head. He didn't even have to say it aloud. It's every man for himself up here. Had been his constant refrain since our trip had started, and I didn't have any time to convince him. They began to dart forward one at a time, playing with us, without a weapon. I couldn't do much other than attempt to dodge them and fail. One of them fainted towards the left and swung around to strike me in the throat. I fell over with a panicked cry. When I reflexively touched my throat I felt a loose skin flap hanging down nearly to my chest. I staggered back just in time to see Derek swing both of his axes at another one. It darted underneath as smoothly as though they'd rehearsed this move a thousand times and caught the head of the axe without even trying. Its other arm whipped out, lightning fast, and clawed open his stomach. Derek screamed and collapsed, both arms crossed over himself protectively. As they advanced on us, I tried to steal myself, their eyes alight with bloodlust. The circle around us tightened and I finally understood that I would die here. We were both going to die here. There was a loud whomp from above us. The things paused their expressions suddenly turning wary. My oxygen deprived brain didn't understand what was happening at first. Not until the snow began to shift underneath my feet. I staggered over to Derek and tried to yank him up. He was lying face down and his blood had soaked into the snow beneath him. I had enough time to say his name before a massive wave of snow flung us forward. I tumbled head over heels, no longer able to tell which way was up or down, as the snowy ground and star-strewn sky became an incomprehensible blur. I barely managed to keep my hold on Derek as the snow carried us down the slope. Something sharp and hard abruptly arrested our fall, slamming into my right side with painful force, a boulder. Derek's body pinned against it, trapping me in place. I screamed which made my side hurt even worse and I had to bite my lip to stop the whimpers that wanted to escape from my throat. The whole ordeal lasted about 40 seconds, but the snow buried us and those other things deep within its grasp. Everything was pitch black. How far from the surface were we? Six inches or six feet? I didn't know, and it hurt to breathe. I had to act before it was too late. Before the ice settled and prevented all further movement. I knocked the snow away from our noses and mouths to create an air pocket. I had to be grateful for the boulder. It had probably prevented us from being buried even deeper. But how long would our air supply last? Time lost all meaning. Minutes, maybe even hours, crawled by. I tried to stay calm because panicking would only waste our limited air supply. But it was hard to think about things I might never get the chance to do again. Visiting my parents, hanging out with my friends, going back to school to finish my master's degree. I didn't want to die here. I didn't want to die at all. But I was going to, and soon, if I didn't decide what to do within the next few seconds. I forced myself to reach out to Derek. His skin was cold under my fingertips. His pulse, weak he was still breathing somehow I could try and most likely fail to dig a way out for the both of us or I swallowed hard my fingertips skidded over his back and for a heart stopping moment I thought that it had been dislodged and lost forever just as mine had but it was there dented on one side but there his oxygen canister Derek struggled weakly as I began to detach his mask from it What are you doing? He slurred, his voice hoarse. He tried to bat me away, but neither of us could move much because of the immense pressure from the weight of the snow. And Derek had lost a lot of blood. I didn't respond. I didn't have the breath, to. Moving as quickly as possible, I attached my mask to the canister and took a deep breath of the tinny, artificial air. It was so cold that it hurt my throat to breathe it in, and I'd never felt anything better in my life. I did my best to ignore Derek as he tried to futilely take his oxygen canister back from me. As he stopped breathing, a choking rattle issued from his throat. I couldn't have done anything for him. We both would have died.
1: Hope you enjoyed. If you ever hear screams on Mount Everest, it's already too late. As written by Certain Emergency One Twenty Two and voiced by Eric Peabody, Creepy Face, Nick Goroff, and Olivia Steele. If you enjoyed Mr. Peabody's performance, you can hear more of him on the Chilling Tales YouTube channel, where he holds the second-place championship title for 2019's Evil Idol competition, as well as recently becoming the new host of Horror Hill. You'll also find more of his work on his website at www.vikingguitar.com. Voice actor and 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. Olivia Steele you'll hear more of right here on our podcast network and YouTube episodes, as well as on her own YouTube channel called Scarily Olivia. Our second tale of the evening is written by Billy Towers and performed by Creepy Face. In it, we focus on something we're all too familiar with. The heat of summer can boil the brain and cause the mind to wander to terrifying places. Now, without further ado, I present to you, In the Heat of Summer.
2: Light, inhale, exhale, breathe. The tobacco fills my lungs on a warm summer night. It's quiet, I'm standing outside a convenience store with 8 gas pumps in front of it, waiting for my friends to come out with a magical mood changing liquid known as Bacardi and my $5 in change to be returned from the 20 I gave them. They're 21. I'm 19, so I sit outside and wait for them. I'm nervous, so I start smoking. There are several reasons why I'm nervous. Anything can happen in the summer heat. And the heat makes people crazy. Inhale, exhale, (coughs) ahem, shit, nearly dropped it. I continue smoking as a man walks up to me and asks for a cigarette. I lie to his face, say that the one in my hand is my last. He mutters something under his breath and stands on the opposite side of the black ashtray that I was on. I know how people can react to that response. Things escalate quickly over a small white stick with a filter and tar. Telling someone you don't have a cigarette while you have one in your hand is no different than shooting someone in the foot right in front of them and claiming you don't have a gun. Anything can happen in the summer heat. And the heat makes people crazy Inhale Exhale Stop Think I reach into my pocket and grab my two and a half inch piece of metal that has been known to end all conversation by the handle A switchblade No spring, easy enough to open and news Flick of the wrist, and it's out Push of a thumb, and it's back in I grasp it tightly with my right hand and smoke my cancer stick in the other. Conjuring up different scenarios in my head of what could happen. What I hope doesn't happen. Everything that can happen. Anything can happen in the summer heat. And the heat makes people crazy. Inhale. Exhale. Duck. Cut. He knocks the ashtray over and swings at me with his right hand. I pull my knife out and cut him wherever I can. I fell off the curb, losing my footing, and now he's on top of me, punching wherever my arms aren't covering my body. My two friends rush out of the store and try to pull him off me. He elbows one of them in the face. The police are here. The store owner calls the police frantically. Everyone's in handcuffs. No one is going home in the morning. Inhale. Exhale. Turn. Look. He's still standing on the opposite side of the ashtray as me. He's looking at his watch. Rolex. Impressive. I pull out my carton and hand him a cigarette. Takes it and nods. He pulls out a box of matches and lights the end of the stick with a single stroke. He asks me what I'm doing. I tell him I'm waiting for friends. I ask him the same question. He gives me the same response. I watch as an SUV pulls sloppily into the gas station, almost running into the gas pump. I shake my head in disturbing concern, I shake my head in disturbing concern, inhale, exhale. Wait, crash! The SUV drives into the convenience store at full speed. In the time it takes to realize what's happening, I'm already a bug on the windshield. The car rams into me without a hint of hesitation. My lifeless body crashes through the counter's window, knocking down the cigarettes sitting on the back wall where the cashier grabs them. My friends scream in horror. They were about to buy a pair of cigars when I came through the window and knocked down the cashier as he handed it to them. He has a few bumps and bruises. The driver was drinking that night and angry at his wife for her infidelity and crashed into the store in a blind rage. Ironically. I looked just like his wife's lover. Anything can happen in the summer heat, and the heat makes people crazy. Inhale, exhale. Tense. Relax. The driver comes out laughing, swerving back and forth. He had been drinking. He was out with friends. His wife comes out of the passenger side and lectures him. Their mutual friend comes out from the back seat and takes the keys from the driver. He does look just like me. The husband is banished to the back seat and the friend gets on the driver's side. The man in the back seat falls over, asleep. The friend and wife look at each other and sneak in a quick kiss while the husband is passed out. Inhale, exhale. Damn! That's life. Inhale. Exhale. Quiet. Bang. The man standing on the opposite side of the ashtray drops his cigarette and falls to the floor. A new hole in his chest from a 9mm pistol. I get on the ground and cover my head. Only one shot was fired. His two friends come outside and shake his limp body, angered and enraged. They both pull out Glock 22s and point them at me. I shake my head and point to where I thought I heard the gunshots. They run in that direction. I try to calm down before my heart gives out on me. Inhale. Exhale. Listen. Nothing. The man next to me is still breathing, inhaling the toxins from the stick in his hand. No new punctures on his body from tiny pieces of lead flying through the air at mock speed. His friends walk out and greet him, trading handshakes, high-fives, and a friendly punch to the shoulder. They walk past me. My grip is still tight on the knife. The man pats me on the shoulder. He nods. I nod back and smile. The grip on my blade loosened as they walked into the night. I stare at the ground. The mini cigar the man was smoking is still lit. I stomp it out just as it was rolling into the parking lot. Right where the oil from a leaky car is puddling. Anything can happen in the summer heat, and the heat makes people crazy. Inhale, exhale, roll, boom. Someone made a mistake. The cigarette the man forgot to put out rolled to where the customers pump their cars with gas. It lands in a puddle of liquid. Fire starts and trails towards a pump with the nozzle dripping. Shit. The entire gas station turns into an angry fireball and swallows itself. The convenience store is demolished and anyone walking by at the moment is now burnt to a crisp. The fire department arrived and extinguished any flames that were left from the explosion. They find the guilty butt of the cancer stick and put it in a plastic bag marked evidence. No one knows whose cigarette it was. Anything can happen in the summer heat, and the heat makes people crazy. Inhale, exhale, extinguish, expose. I smash the lit end of my cigarette into the wall behind me, and tossed the entire thing into the trash can. My two friends walk out. They're laughing and telling dry, corny jokes. I laugh with them, not because they're funny, but because they're here. I'm here. We are here. We are okay. We walk away from the convenience store and down the street to our favorite park. We sit there and enjoy our bounty. Tequila and cola are the best memory erasers. They tell you everything will be okay when you know it won't. I hand one of my friends my pack of cigarettes and tell her to keep it. She calls me crazy because I bought the pack at the store ten minutes ago. I chuckle before I tell her what's been on my mind since we got to the gas station. In the heat of the summer, anything can happen, and the heat makes people crazy.
1: I hope you enjoyed In the Heat of Summer, as written by Billy Towers and performed by Creepyface. Creepyface's performances can be found right here on our very own network, as well as on his YouTube channel called by the same name. Now, our weekly Descent into the Depths has just about come to a close, but before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight, and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a five-star review and a kind word, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work that goes back a decade, 2012 and consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Dreams, chilling tales for dark nights.